If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. I've been expounding Romans 5, 1 through 11 for several messages now, and uh, Lord willing, today we will finish up this section of the book of Romans. But in every one of these messages, I've said that the point of these verses is to assure Christians of their salvation, to make them know that they are eternally secure in Christ, so that they may rejoice in God fully. And in this text, we find the same idea. I might uh, be inclined to apologize for the repetition, were it not for the fact that this is clearly the emphasis of the whole chapter. And a matter of fact, as I've said numerous times, it's going to continue with that emphasis in one form or another right through the end of chapter 8. But it is not mere repetition because the apostle repeats his thesis over and over again. And the fact that we can be assured of our salvation has already been supported by a variety of arguments. He said we can be assured of salvation because God has made peace with us through Christ. We can be assured of salvation because through the same work of Christ, we have been brought into a new relationship with God. And we now stand in that. And we can be assured of salvation because of the sure and certain hope that we will see God. We can be assured of salvation because of how we can react to sufferings in this life. We can rejoice in our sufferings. And unbelievers cannot do that. We can be assured of salvation because God sent Jesus Christ to die in our place. And he did that not when we were believers, not when we were saved people like we are now, but he did it when we were ungodly. He did it while we were still sinners. And so in this last section, Paul provides yet another argument, or really he, he wraps up his previous arguments. Sometimes today I hear, actually it's more often than sometimes, I hear people say things like this. What you need to do as a Christian is to quit thinking and just feel in your heart that something is right. Well, the only thing wrong with that statement is it's wrong. Paul was a brilliant thinker, and he employed logic and reason in his writing. It is not at all unspiritual for us to use logic and to reason our way through the Holy Scriptures. Indeed, it is highly spiritual, for that is what we find in this chapter. A Christian is not a person who lives on his feelings. Essentially, a Christian is a person who grasps the truth and knows how to reason from it. <clears throat> and that truth can bring us, will bring us, great joy. We, we see here one of the logical principles for biblical interpretation. And Paul 
as a Jewish thinker and writer, often used this argument. It is the argument that would be known to the Hebrew theologians as the light-heavy argument. And that refers to a form of arguing where if a lesser thing is true, then a greater thing must clearly be true also. Jesus employed this type of argumentation. For instance, in Matthew chapter 7, he said, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Obviously, if men who are evil uh, do good to those who are close to us, that's the light part of the comparison, then God, who is utterly and completely good, the heavy part, will do good to his children. A second principle related to this argument just kind of turns it around, that from the heavy to the light. It argues that if something great is true, then something lesser in the same category will obviously be true as well. And Paul uses that principle twice in these verses. First in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, that's the heavy, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Since we've been justified by his blood, much more we will be saved from the wrath of God. Then in verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Each of these arguments is based upon things that God has already done for us through the death of Christ. They are the great works of justification on one hand and reconciliation on the other. And they are so great that they are used by God to commend his love to us, as Paul has stated earlier. But if God has already done such great works on our behalf, justifying us in Christ when we were ungodly and reconciling us to himself while we were enemies, God will obviously continue his work in the lesser task of seeing us through this life and taking us safely to heaven, to the throne of God. So, I want, I want you to notice a couple of things in these verses. First in verse 9 is that of future redemption. When we look at verse 9, we have the tendency to think that we've already heard everything that this verse has to teach. After all, wrath is a, is a concept that was first introduced back in Revelation chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Then the doctrine of justification was developed fully, compellingly, in Romans 3. And then Romans 5, 9 seems to be an almost identical repeat of verse 1 in the chapter. It is true, of course, that this is the first time we've encountered the word 
saved in the letter. But what have we been talking about all of this time if it is not salvation? To understand what is happening here, what Paul is saying in verse 9, you have to realize that the word saved is used in at least three different ways in the Bible and three different tenses. Sometimes it refers to something in the past. Sometimes it refers to something in the present. And sometimes to something yet to come. Suppose someone asks you, are you a Christian? Are you saved? And you respond, uh, yes, I am. But it would actually be theologically correct for you to give that answer three different ways. Yes, I am being only one of them. If you are thinking of what Jesus accomplished for you by dying for you on the cross, bringing you the blessing of justification by faith alone, then it would be right to answer, yes, I am. I am saved from the penalty of sin. I have been justified. That is something that happened in the past and has continuing results in the present. But if you're thinking of what God is accomplishing in your life day by day, that is the process we know as sanctification, then it would be correct for you to answer, yes, I am being saved. Now, I am being saved from the power of sin. Every day, I am becoming more like Christ. Every day, I am dying to sin. I am taking up my cross, and I am walking uh, in the way that Christ commands. That's the sense that Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, literal translation, it is the power of God. That means that God is working in our lives right now through the power of the cross to deliver us from the bondage of sin. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. But thirdly, you could think of that in future terms. Someone says, are you saved? You might say, yes, but not completely. Not completely. For one day, when Jesus comes, I will be completely saved. I will be glorified. I have been justified, and that saves me from the penalty. I am being sanctified, and that is saving me from the power of sin. And one day, I will be glorified. And I will be saved from the presence of sin. Sin will no longer be in my presence at all. And God is doing all of these things in our lives. One day we will be delivered from the presence of sin. We will be made like Jesus. And we will be like him and with him forever. I mentioned those three uh, ways that the Bible uses the word saved. Because it is in the third sense, in the future sense of salvation, that Paul is speaking here. He's not denying the others, particularly not the first, but Paul is thinking of the judgment to come. And he's saying, because you have been 
justified on the basis of the death of Christ, you can be absolutely certain that you are saved from the outpouring of the wrath of God on the final day. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You are certain for eternal glory if you have been justified you absolutely will be glorified and you are being sanctified Martin Lloyd-Jones says the apostles argument is that this method this way of salvation that God has planned is a complete whole therefore if we have been justified by the blood of Christ we are joined to Christ we are in Christ and we shall therefore be saved by him completely and perfectly. How do you know that you will one day stand before God completely sinless? Because we have been justified by his blood. And one day we will be completely saved. God has already justified us by the atoning death of Jesus Christ. He's already pronounced the verdict. He's already said that, that we are righteous. He has declared us to be righteous based upon what Jesus Christ has done. And that will be his final verdict. That is his verdict now. It's his final answer. You don't get another. If you have been justified, you are being sanctified, you will be glorified. And then in verse 10, arguing from the heavy to the light of anything even more apparent, in verse 10, where Paul speaks of reconciliation. What is the heavy thing that God has done for us? It is this very work that we've been looking at in detail uh, last week. There we were dealing with the love of God, and I said that the basis upon which God commends his love to us is that it caused him to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us while we were still sinners. And our sinfulness was spelled out uh, in three powerful terms, and then a fourth in verse 10. Paul describes us as weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Weak means we were unable to save ourselves. Total depravity means total inability. Man in his sin is unable to make one step towards God. Unless God, by His grace, regenerates man so that he can see the kingdom, repent of his sin, and put his faith in Jesus Christ. We were not only unwilling to be saved, we were unable to be saved. We could not be saved apart from the grace of God. Ungodly means that we were opposed to God in His nature. We don't like we didn't like God for who he was. Sinners means that we had violated God's moral law, particularly that second table of the law that is meant to regulate our conduct toward other people. And enemies is the worst of all. It means that not only do we dislike God in his nature, and not only are we opposed to God in that nature, but we would destroy him if we could. 
what does an enemy do when he meets an enemy? What, what does your enemy do if he meets you on the battlefield? He tries to kill you. That's his job. It is your job, if you are a soldier, it is your job to kill the enemy. It is their job to kill you. You're the enemy. And we think that God's law is so suffocating, so oppressive, that we would kill God if we could. And I know you think, oh, no, men would never kill God. They did once. I mean, Jesus Christ came to earth perfect, loved everybody, healed everybody that he met, raised the dead, turned water into wine, fed multitudes of people. And what did they do? They killed him. And it was the best men on the planet that did it. The most religious, the most moral. So we are set on destroying God and destroying His influence in the lives of those around us. But, says Paul, we were like this, when we were like this, God reconciled us to Himself through Jesus' death. Reconciliation, remember, means to remove the grounds of hostility hostility, and transform the relationship, changing the relationship from one of enmity to one of friendship. In our case, God has taken us out of the category of his enemies and placed us into the category as privileged sons and daughters. If God did that while we were his enemies, Paul reasons, then he's certainly going to save us from the outpouring of his wrath on the final day of judgment, now that we are his family members, if while we were enemies, God saved us, reconciled us to himself, then as his children, he most certainly is going to save us from the wrath to come. If God has done the greater thing, he will absolutely do the lesser thing. And then that brings full rejoicing. As he says in verse 11, this, this marks the end of the first half of Romans 5. And I, I know, I know what all of you are thinking. You're thinking, wow, we have just zipped through Romans chapter 5. Well, I, I would agree. I would agree. If I were smarter, we'd have been here longer. There is a sense in which this idea returns us back to where we started. In the first sense of Romans 5, we have rejoicing mentioned when he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But a careful reading of our text shows that the object of our rejoicing is not the same in both cases. In verse 2, the reason, the object for our rejoicing is in hope of the glory of God. That is in our glorification. We have an absolute certainty that we will see God's glory. We will see God. And in order to see God in all of His glory, we will have to be glorified. Pursue holiness without which no man shall see God. So that is the hope there in our glorification. And that's a cause of great joy for us. Someday, we will see God. 
we will be glorified. However, in verse 11, the object of our rejoicing is not our glorification, as important as that is, but God himself. We are rejoicing in God himself. It is God who is the object of our rejoicing. Not what he has done for us, but him, who he is. He has, he has become to us our Savior, our Redeemer, our Reconciler, and we rejoice in him. And that's obviously the greater thing. To rejoice in God is the greatest of all human activities. If you have been in my study, there is a sign on the wall in there that I had made about 45 years ago and placed on the wall. All of my grandchildren can quote it. It says, question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we are here for, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Up to this point, I've not marked the number of ways and times that God has that Paul has referred to God in this first half of Romans 5, but now I want to do it. In the first paragraph, he has referred to each person of the Trinity. He says, we have peace with God through us in the hope of the glory of God, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity. In the passage as a whole, the Holy Spirit is referred to once. God the Father is referred to seven times. The Lord Jesus Christ is referred to five times, plus four more times is he referred to it by the personal pronouns. So what exactly shall we rejoice in if we are not to rejoice in God? How do you rejoice in God? We say things like that and sometimes think, well, everybody understands what we're saying. So if I say to you, the greatest activity of a human being is to rejoice in God, exactly what does that mean? How do I do that? We can rejoice in his attributes. And our passage here suggests a number of them. God's wisdom. God's wisdom. Think of God's wisdom that came up with this plan of salvation, whereby God could remain holy and still justify those who are unholy. How could God justify a vile sinner like me and remain holy? of the death of Jesus Christ in my place. Several chapters from now, after Paul has worked out this unfolding plan of salvation, he will say this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. I, I think that most of us go through life because of the pressure from the culture, thinking that God is just a little bit smarter than the smartest man on earth. I mean, you know, you, you got you got me, and then you got you know college professors, and then you got Einstein, and then right above that there's God. 
No. No. God is infinitely wiser than the wisest men all of them put together who have ever lived. Listen. When we have been in glory for a hundred thousand years, and there won't be any years there, I know that, but for the sake of the illustration, let me say, okay? But when we have been there, we still will not know everything there is to know about God. Because He is eternal. He is the Creator. We are the creature. In a billion years, we won't know everything there is to know about God. God's wisdom is inexhaustible. It is infinite. And we praise Him for it. We, we think, we don't think of the question, how can God save sinners without ignoring or otherwise condoning their sin? And then here is this marvelous gospel where God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly through the death of Jesus Christ. It took the wisdom of God to devise that plan. No man would ever have thought of it, ever, ever. What does man think about doing? Work your way to God. Be good. Be better than someone else. Go to church more. Just be nicer. That'll get you to heaven. No, it won't. God's grace. We can praise God and we can rejoice in God for His grace. God's grace is usually defined as God's favor to the undeserving. But we rejoice in God's grace because in our case, God's grace is favor not merely to the undeserving, but to those who actually deserve the opposite. What do enemies deserve after all? Defeat, destruction, death. But God didn't treat us that way. Rather, He has saved us through the work of Christ. God's power. Sometimes we forget about God's power when we think of salvation. We reserve that, that attribute for the creation. But the Scripture speaks of God's power being displayed preeminently at the cross. The earliest reference to it is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, where it says, describing what will happen when the mediator comes, God speaking to, to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The cross is portrayed as a battlefield on which Satan and all of his hosts will be defeated. The power of God was revealed preeminently at the cross for Satan's power over us is broken. And we rejoice in God's power, God's love. Really the only place we can really learn of the love of God is at the cross. We talked about that last week. That God shows his love for us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's immutability. Several times I've referred to immutability for something which unregenerate, unregenerate men and women hate God because you see God will always be all wise and he will always be all powerful and he will always be gracious 
and he will always be a God of love. We rejoice in the fact that God does not change. When we are here on Sunday morning, and when we are with the saints of God, and when we sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains. A joy wells up in us, and an assurance, an assurance of salvation that we are the children of God. We sense it, and we revel in it. Or, or on a day when, you know, you wake up, you have one of those days where you wake up like at 4.30 in the morning, and you just want to get up, you're just hungering and thirsting for God. And you get up, you run and get your Bible, and you read your Bible for about an hour. I mean, you finish your whole, you know, two weeks reading in an hour. And then you pray for an hour. You pray for everybody you can think of. And the presence of God is so real, you think you could just reach out and touch Him. And, and all through the day, you're sharing with people about God's love and grace, and you're urging people to come to Christ and to know Him, and you're, you're just reveling in the, in the knowledge of God. And you think, man, what a great day. I know I'm saved today. But then what about that day when it comes, the alarm goes off 14 times, you just keep hitting it, finally you pick it up and throw it in the corner. And you get up reluctantly. You don't want to get up because you're already going to be late for work. So you yell at the, you yell at your spouse. You scream at the kids. You slap the cat. You kick the dog. You burn rubber going down the road. You can't wait to get to work so you can chew somebody out. And you do. And the whole day is just one of cursing and screaming and near blasphemy. you get convicted. Does God love me today? Listen. Paul is saying here that God loves you with a perfect love. You know what perfect love means? It's perfect. He cannot love you anymore. He will not love you any less. God doesn't love you one bit less on that second day than he does on that first day. God loves you with a perfect love and He will love you with a perfect love from now to eternity. Always. That is the wonder of God's love. We can rejoice in God because He loves us with a perfect love. God is not going to change His mind and cast us off because we don't meet some standard that somebody else has set. God is going to love us forever because His love cannot change. God has loved us. He has brought us into His kingdom. And He will love us with a perfect love for all of eternity. And that love will never, ever, ever change. The last verse of the section says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also rejoice in God. The real mark of a believer is that he rejoices. He rejoices in God. Honesty would compel us to admit that sometimes we don't rejoice in God. The reason is 
because we don't grasp the truth of justification by faith alone and all that it means. Or we don't meditate on it as we ought to. We don't draw the necessary conclusions of it from the Scripture as we ought to. Our failures do not determine God's love for us. God's love for us is determined by the character of God Himself. That cannot change. That will not change. We are assured that we have been justified by His blood. We are being sanctified and one day we will be glorified. Meditate on these great truths. When you have one of those bad days that causes you perhaps to doubt the love of God, think of all that God has done. Think of all that God is and know it. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, pray that you will sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth.